in the aftermath of ever-increasing terrorist attacks, there are the inevitable press conferences where politicians and civic leaders extend their prayers for the wounded and for family members who are in mourning. But a New York newspaper recently poured scorn on the gesture and dismissed the prayers with a cynical front-page headline that blazed, God will not fix it. The newspaper described the prayers offered by leaders as meaningless platitudes. So we're living in an age of cynicism and apostasy that's increasingly hostile to Christians. Anti-Christian bigotry is even becoming respectable in many places. Prayer shaming is the new tactic of leftists and progressives to pour scorn on Christianity. So what should our reaction be as believers? Hello, I'm Christine Dorick. The British poet Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote something that I wholeheartedly agree with. His famous quote was, more things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. I mentioned that New York newspaper's front page headline, which poured scorn and cynicism on prayers offered up by leaders after a terrorist attack in California. Rather than being shamed into silence, our reaction as believers should be to pray more and not less. Have you noticed how increasingly people, politicians, leaders, pundits have lost the ability to express good old common sense and reasoning? The Bible describes this kind of breakdown in reasoning powers as a judgment. Because when you throw God in this Bible out of schools, when you ban God from courthouses, governments, and even churches, God gives us up to our own devices. Abandon God and he will send a strong delusion. People will lose their ability to think clearly. Father God, we plead for mercy. Our Western leaders have their heads in the clouds of climate control in a time when unspeakable atrocities are happening. Well, the prophet Isaiah put it like this in chapter 59 in verse 14. It says, judgment is turned backward and justice stands afar off. For truth is fallen in the streets and honesty can't enter. When we shut our eyes to truth, the Almighty hides from our eyes the things that belong to our peace. And when the sins of a nation are not restrained by public justice, the results are public judgments. Now, when Christianity first began, the Apostle Paul, who was one of the greatest intellectuals of his day, and certainly within Judaism, Paul stood up and said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. Paul went against the tide to preach the gospel of the risen Savior, and those of us who stand up for the gospel today are also surely going against the tide. Paul said in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of the Messiah, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. To the Jew first, he said, and also to the Greek. In declaring that he was not ashamed, Paul
Paul may have been thinking of our Lord's own warning in the Gospel of Mark, found in chapter 8, in verse 38, where Jesus said, Whoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And Luke 9.26 more or less says the same thing. Jesus said, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. We're soon going to see that day. Well, the proud pagan Greek philosophy in Paul's day despised the message of the cross. And nothing has really changed, only the characters. Now the sneers and jeers of the so-called progressives in our day also despise the message of the cross. They dismiss it as sheer nonsense. But it takes courage to withstand hatred and opposition to the gospel. But we must be like our Lord and Master Jesus, who because of the joy of the eternal reward of bringing many sons and daughters to glory, he himself despised the shame of the cross. And he went forward along the way of sorrows, carrying his own cross to fulfill his purpose as the world's redeemer. He endured the shame because of the goal. And we also must despise prayer shaming and every kind of shaming that's thrown at us to try to silence us. I'm here to tell you and to reassure you that there's no power greater in this present world than the power of prayer. Because true believing prevailing prayer brings God Almighty into the equation and onto the scene. But because nations in the West have basically thrown God out of the public arena, the Lord's precepts and the power of prayer are no longer honored. And therefore, rational thinking is becoming increasingly warped and unrecognizable. Bible symbols are being outlawed, and every day there's a new challenge against sacred hell beliefs. When I travel and stay in hotels, I check to see if the Gideon charity has supplied a Bible in the bedside tables. But now there are some disbelievers who would prefer the teachings of Charles Darwin in hotel rooms over a Bible. An American atheist group is advocating that hotels should offer Bible-free bedrooms, suggesting that it would be better to see Darwin's book about the theory of evolution in the bedrooms. The Freedom From Religion Foundation is the organization that wrote to numerous hotels claiming that many guests are deeply offended by the invasive Bibles, which they claim are proselytizing people, quote, in the privacy of their own bedrooms. But if a Bible in a bedroom proselytizes, so would a copy of Darwin's book on the origin of species. Well, the Freedom From Religion Foundation commended the UK's travel lodge chain for removing Bibles in 2014. The travel lodge company said the decision was made in order not to discriminate against any religion. The practice of placing Bibles in hotel rooms dates all the way back over 120 years and originated with the Commercial Travelers Christian Association. But today, the Gideons International have taken responsibility for the work of distributing Bibles in hotels in over 190 countries.
but now the Gideons are being shamed. Politicians who pray are being shamed. Their prayers are being reduced to drivel by the cynics. In Paul's day, the gospel was considered a contemptible thing. And tragically, it's once again contemptible in the eyes of too many. Every one of us who hopes to be faithful to the Lord must be prepared to receive contempt, to be despised and abused. But it's better to be rejected and laughed to scorn like Jesus and the apostles than to have the favor of a dying, sick world. So I need to share a harsh reality recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 13, where Paul said, We are slandered, and when we are slandered, we answer kindly. And then he said graphically, We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this present moment. Yes, to put it plainly, followers of the Messiah are often treated like the world's garbage, like somebody's trash, and right up to the present time. And it takes moral courage. It's been said that many a man will be willing to take a bullet for the honor of fame and country, yet the same man might shrink from scorn for the honor of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, the Lord's followers are often regarded as the scum of the earth. Yet some of the world's most noble, most magnificent and intellectual men and women throughout history have been followers of the way. Intellectually, the gospel is a higher concept than any religious scheme that's been cooked up by men. Thus, the brilliant apostle Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because he realized it could accomplish what the law was powerless to do. From his own personal experience, Paul discovered that the gospel has an inherent power able to produce a mighty spiritual change in a man's whole character in life, to be born again. He wasn't ashamed because he recognized the gospel's extraordinary power to regenerate a soul. And it has a civilizing effect on entire nations when honored and obeyed. No system of philosophy can touch the grandeur, the power, and the simplicity of the gospel. Yet it's true that messengers of the gospel are treated shamefully. So Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 that we have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. He said we're fools for Christ in to this hour we go hungry and thirsty, we're in rags, we're brutally treated, homeless. As a tent maker, he said, we work hard with our own hands. When we're cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we answer kindly. Yes, we have become the scum of the earth right up to this moment. Well, I like Paul's thought that in the midst of such suffering and degradation and disregard, yet he was being watched in a universal arena. Not just the apostles, I believe, but every true Bible believer who wants to live a godly life will become a spectacle to angels as well as to the other human beings. The word that Paul uses here for spectacle in the Greek is literally the word for theater. 
This tells us that you and I are willing players in a universal drama. This is because angels are watching the whole history of salvation as it is unfolding. And because God made us with free wills in a very real sense, we can actually choose the part we're going to play in the presence of angels. We can be doubters and scorners, or we can be those who do exploits for God and for eternity. You see, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament informs us that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, that many eyes are upon us when we struggle with difficulties or temptations. And so the fact that we're being watched to see how we will perform should encourage courage and patience. And not that we are performers per se. You see, if we're born again, the power of the Holy Spirit indwells us to do the Lord's will as we yield to him our bodies and our souls. But Bible commentators explain that Paul was making allusion to the cruel spectacles in the Roman Colosseum. In those beastly games, men were forced to cut one another to pieces. And if the victor managed to preserve his life, he was only kept over for another combat because he must be killed in the end. On some days, when thousands were assembled in the Colosseum, the first show would be men fighting with hungry lions and tigers. But in the first act, the men were allowed to wear armor. In the intermission, the vast crowds would refresh themselves with grapes, wine, and other delicacies. And then the second gruesome performance began, consisting of men this time fighting without armor, without anything to defend themselves except their swords. The results being that the slightest touch of their weapons inflicted a gash. So Paul was saying that he and his fellow apostles were like gospel gladiators. As it were, they were doomed to be flung to the wild beasts. Well, as I've said to, as before, some terrorists today behave like wild beasts. But by God's grace, you and I may not be flung to the wild beasts. Only God knows our ultimate future. But the least we are doing is playing on a daily stage and being watched by the angels. But the life of a believer is much more than just a short-term mere actor on a stage. No, we disciples of Jesus are a spectacle 24-7 to our families, our neighbors, our friends, our work companions, our enemies, and also to the angelic hosts and God himself. And this stage goes on for life. Now I want to mention that increased anti-Semitism is another problem we're facing today, and it's becoming a real menace. Anti-Semitism is a mental disorder and reveals animosity against the God of Israel. Many politicians, activists, theologians, terrorists, sadly want to pour shame on anybody who dares to stand up for the state of Israel and its right to exist. Did you know that the state of Israel is part of the gospel of Jesus the Messiah? And anybody who, de who denies that doesn't know this book from cover to cover. Another aspect of the gospel that takes real courage is to proclaim God's ongoing faithfulness to Israel. 
Israelology is not a popular message, tragically, due to the increase, once again, of anti-Semitism, which stems, by the way, from biblical illiteracy. The tragedy and irony is that the world should not be anti-Semitic right now because we've seen so much Bible prophecy fulfilled already in the modern state of Israel. This Bible prophecy being fulfilled should have brought about a reverence for God's word. But instead, in the face of all of these visible prophecies, mankind is rebelling, hating, persecuting, and even boycotting Israel. Many men have arisen in clerical garments to condemn Israel and Christian Zionists, Bible believers who support God's end-time program of restoring our Jewish patriarchs to their ancestral land, just as he promised to do time and time again in this Bible. The Israel issue is very important because God's character and faithfulness are at stake. The Lord has a wonderful purpose for the church and also an ongoing purpose for Israel. With the spirit of this world, which infiltrates even the church world, becoming increasingly anti-Semitic and anti-Israel, it's going to become increasingly critical in these end times as to where you stand on Israel. God is with Israel. So you will either be for or against the God of Israel. It's very much a defining issue. Your position on Israel's right to exist will determine to a great extent whether you are working for or against God's purposes. But don't misunderstand me. You don't have to agree with all of the politics of the present government of Israel because the state of Israel at this point has not yet received its end time spiritual revival. But we must agree with God's word that he is, at this present time, regathering his ancient people to their homeland and that the fig tree is blossoming against all odds. If the love of God has indeed been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, we will comprehend by the Spirit of God that he loves Israel with an everlasting love and therefore we should hold that same love in our hearts. That is, if we're truly born again. In the very least, we should be eternally grateful towards Israel for having given us the Bible and our Savior Jesus, who was born of the tribe of Judah. We therefore have a great debt to repay to the Jewish people, and we can do this by supporting Israel and praying for her protection and preservation. Also, every watchman upon the walls of Jerusalem is expected by God to actively pray for the regathering and restoration of the nation of Israel, for that's his agenda as revealed in the Bible. Not only does Israel face great challenges right now, but they're destined to go through a time of tribulation in the future that the Bible refers to solemnly as Jacob's trouble. So are we not commanded in Psalm 122, verse 6, to pray for the shalom of Jerusalem? Jerusalem is the city of the great king, and Jerusalem is the true capital of the earth, the center of great spiritual warfare contested over continually by God's enemies. I often think about the history of the church 
as a relay race. And we're in the last lap, and the gospel baton has been handed to us. Recently, I looked up relay race on Wikipedia, and the fourth person in a relay race is called the anchor. He's usually the fastest of all the runners. Well, Jesus is the anchor of our souls, and he has passed the baton to us. He's expecting us to run the race with vigor as a spectacle to both men and angels. Amen. Well, to bring this program to a conclusion, I need to return to my thoughts that I shared at the beginning of the program about what's going on with so-called prayer shaming. Prayer shaming describes the attitude of pundits in the press and on the social media who ridicule public prayer. I mentioned the blazing headline of the New York Daily News that illustrates this trend most cynically. 14 victims were shot dead in a California massacre, and the headline screamed, God isn't fixing this. A subhead said, as the latest batch of innocent Americans are left lying in pools of blood, cowards who would truly end gun control continue to hide behind meaningless platitudes. Friends, I want to ask you, are prayers mere platitudes? In all honesty, prayers can be platitudes if they're offered by insincere people. However, turning to God in a time of national crisis isn't something to be mocked for heaven's sakes. But prayer shamers don't believe the Almighty can fix anything. Surely this is the age of apostasy. What an incredible lack of understanding of the purpose and power of prayer. One of my rabbinic friends wrote a blog decrying the New York newspaper. He mentioned the story of Moses who prayed in the wilderness when the enemy Amalek attacked his ancestors shortly after the Jewish exodus from Egypt. Moses instructed his disciple Joshua to form an army to fight the enemy on the ground while Moses ascended a mountain to pray. As long as Moses held up his arms in prayer, the Israelites prevailed, and Moses was aided by Aaron and Hur, the son of Miriam. They held up Moses' arms. And this is such a great picture of the coordination of prayer and battle, a picture of human effort with divine assistance. Whenever Moses lifted his hands in prayer, the Jews gained the upper hand in combat. But whenever he stopped beseeching God and his arms got tired, the tide of war shifted in favor of Amalek. So Moses realized he couldn't stop praying for one moment. And his friends joined him in corporate prayer, held up his hands, and that's what assured victory. We do need God, and God wants us. My friend Rabbi Benjamin Blech wrote in his blog, Without prayer, man thinks he's God. Faith is not knowing what the future holds. It's knowing who holds the future. Yes, my friend, prayer defines us. Prayer gives us hope. Prayers are not pointless. All prayers are heard by the Almighty, and all prayers are answered in God's own ways and times. So most definitely we can assure you that God is fixing this. He's fixing the evil of the terrorists of our times. 
They will be conquered because all evil is eventually conquered. And in the meantime, it's our sacred critical job as intercessors to do spiritual battle. I'm not ashamed of the power of prayer. I'm not ashamed to say that I pray about everything. And I serve a God who answers prayers big time. I pray for big things and for little things. I'm one of those persons who prays for a parking space. I pray ahead of time for a parking space and God always has one for me. But I also pray for entire nations and for the peace of Jerusalem. It's so important to pour out our hearts on a daily basis before God to discharge and relieve our burdens at the throne of grace and then to go on our way merrily throughout the rest of the day trusting and watching God to answer specific prayers time after time. He's so faithful. And here's the thought. People have a wrong perception that if their prayers aren't answered right away that heaven has ignored or not listened to their prayers. But I can assure you that nothing could be further from the truth. Well, you don't jump to attention every time your child asks you for something, do you? And the same goes for God. He doesn't necessarily grant a request right on the spot. The rabbis and the sages say that whenever you're experiencing deficiency in any area, the reason is most likely an insufficiency in prayer. As the great rabbi Jesus himself said, keep asking, seeking, and knocking. If your request hasn't yet been fulfilled, don't be discouraged. Keep praying, keep knocking, and you'll see big answers. You'll see major, great salvations and amazing deliverances. I guarantee you that the Lord listens to his obedient children, and he's not ashamed to answer our prayers. Yes, my friends, more things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. Amen. Well, speaking of prayer, I want to extend an invitation for you to visit our website at exploits.tv where you can read about Israel in the news and learn details about our upcoming prayer convocations. We hold at least three prayer conferences annually in Israel, and each one is always strategic because every time you visit Israel, it's always the most important time because ongoing Bible prophecy is continually unfolding in the land. Also at our website, you can click online to receive an electronic copy of our color news magazine called Exploits. And don't forget to connect with me on the social media. Daniel 11.32 says, The people who know their God will be strong and carry out exploits. In the Hebrew, the word exploits is take action. Prayer acts are some of the great actions of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So I urge you to receive the Lord without delay so the life of God can flood your being. When we're born again and washed clean of our sins by Jesus' atoning blood, our spirits are regenerated and God lives His God life of power through us. He puts his desires within our hearts and he puts his prayer burdens within our souls. The life of God within us makes every day an adventure full of exploits. So until next time that we're together, always praying for the peace of Jerusalem and contending earnestly for the faith,
I'm Christine Darg. Shalom. The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching.